High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to a new season of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. This season begins with the phrase, behind the scenes. When I hear that phrase, I think of certain TV shows I grew up with, like Access Hollywood and Entertainment Tonight, which gave their viewers, including me, a child, the illusion of an exclusive glimpse into how movies were really made and what stars and certain celebrity filmmakers were really like. When I was eight, nine, ten years old and watching these shows every night, I didn't know that I was actually being fed, for the most part, extremely packaged and highly vetted publicity materials. Almost without exception, Anything that promises to take us behind the scenes is really showing us another scene, one designed to give the impression that something is being revealed, while usually the new scene is just as contrived as the scene it's meant to deconstruct. This may seem obvious today when most of us are pretty media savvy, but it wasn't clear in the 80s when the producers of a show like Entertainment Tonight could count on their audiences being somewhat naive. This was before the internet turned us all into detectives and scholars and made so much of media history available for free 
at the click of a button. Most viewers would not have spent much time thinking about the construction of behind-the-scenes content. Of course, most people didn't know that the very idea of going behind the scenes was historically always a kind of sleight of hand and also a euphemism for illicit activity. Do you know the origins of the phrase behind the scenes? I didn't, until I read Hearst Over Hollywood, a book by Louis Pizzatola about newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst's engagement with the film industry, from the inception of the Flickers to Marion Davies to Citizen Kane and beyond. Pizzatola explains that the phrase behind the scenes dates back to the days of Tammany Hall, New York, in the mid-1800s. At that point in time, as in many points in time, the local government consisted of white men in smoke-filled rooms who made rules for other people to follow and rigged the system so that they could enjoy and profit from their own vices with impunity. At the peak of its influence, Tammany Hall itself was located on 14th Street in Manhattan, a locus of nightlife. Brothels and risque theaters and nightclubs were allowed to operate in the area if the operators of such establishments gave regular payouts to the racketeers who were in league with the local government and police. Female sex workers were allowed, and in some cases invited, to sit in the balconies of legitimate theaters looking for customers. And they would sometimes engage in assignations right in the theater. As reformers started to exert pressure to clean up public spaces, this type of activity moved literally behind the scenes, meaning sex workers would work out deals with the theater operators to take their dates through the back of the theater to brothels located directly behind the stage door on 13th Street, or even to dressing rooms behind the stage, often while the play or performance was going on. Pizzatola writes about this origin of the phrase behind the scenes in his book about Hearst, because Hearst knew this scene well. After dropping out of Harvard, Hearst whiled away his time in 14th Street clubs and theaters mingling with Tammany Hall types, and eventually meeting his wife, Millicent, when she appeared as a dancer in a review called The Girl from Paris. Millicent's mother ran a boarding house on 13th Street, which was later reputed to have been the kind of establishment to which men were taken for behind-the-scenes activity. Before his marriage, Hearst was believed to have had relations with both Millicent and her sister, Anita, who were snarkily gossiped about as the Sassafras sisters. Non-alcoholic Sassafras root beer, being what certain ladies were known to drink to fool Johns into thinking they were knocking back booze. William Randolph Hearst is going to be a significant character on the podcast this season, which will also delve into a variety of behind-the-scenes activity the invisible machinations, often involving corruption and scandal, that have historically shaped and influenced all manner of media, such as newspapers, movies, radio, television, and advertising. This season, 
We're going to focus on two women who became rich and famous in a world of men by selling regular people the illusion that they were taking them behind the scenes. While really, they were reinforcing a system that relied on audiences, having no idea how movies were really made or what stars were really like. This season is called Gossip Girls. The next nine episodes will not be about the recently rebooted teen TV soap, nor will they be about the newest wave of gossip purveyors, exemplified by unverified, anonymously submitted, unedited streams of encounters on Instagram accounts like Dumois, or the narrativizing of paparazzi photos seen in tabloids like the Daily Mail. Although we will try to connect the dots between the celebrity gossip of today and the celebrity gossip of Hollywood's first century. This season of You Must Remember This is about the girls, actually the adult women, both of them single moms who hit their stride in middle age, who invented the movie gossip game and kept it rolling in lockstep with the studio system. Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. <laughs> oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? And Hollywood's best-known, best-loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper were the most prominent, most prolific Hollywood gossip columnists of the 20th century. And together, they had enormous influence and power over how the entertainment industry was presented to its customers. It's possible you've never heard of Hopper and Parsons, although unlikely if you've ever listened to previous seasons of this podcast. You may have seen one or the other depicted in any number of films or shows about Hollywood. Hedda Hopper was played by Helen Mirren in the film Trumbo and by Judy Davis in Feud, Betty and Joan. Elizabeth Taylor played Luella in a 1985 TV movie called Malice in Wonderland, a camp fest about Parsons and Hopper that was the rare dramatization to try to give both gossip columnists equal time. Both Hopper and Parsons tend to get conflated in the popular imagination as a single, two-headed monster, a fact the Coen brothers made fun of in Hail Caesar, where they depicted a mid-century Hollywood under the siege of twin gossip columnist sisters, both played by Tilda Swinton. Until you know their whole stories, it's easy to confuse Luella and Hedda. The professional landscape turned them into bitter rivals, but they actually had tons in common. Though Parsons became a columnist over 20 years before Hedda, they were about the same age. They were both from small-town America, and both became single mothers, at a time when that was not a terrifically socially acceptable thing to be. Both could be bigoted, although Hopper's columns were far more blatantly anti-Semitic and racist than Parsons. And both were professionally aligned with journalistic brands founded by charismatic men, 
who, in the spirit of the gold rush and manifest destiny, saw public opinion as a territory to be conquered. Luella Parsons spent the bulk of her career working for Hearst. When Luella first met Hearst in the 1920s, he was already notorious for having pioneered a style of infotainment known as yellow journalism, which sold current events to the working class as spectacle. He had been given his first newspaper by his father, a miner who literally struck gold and then moved on to politics. Hearst used his fortune to break all the conventional rules of newspaper publishing that would keep him from using his papers as organs for making more money. Meanwhile, Hedda Hopper's column was featured in the Los Angeles Times, which was the voice of the ruling class of Los Angeles. That voice was shaped by Harrison Otis, a Civil War veteran known as the Colonel, who took over the paper in the 1880s and used it as a tool for the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, of which he was a founder. By Otis's design, the LA Times would be the paper not of the people, but of property owners, businessmen, and the banks. He wrote editorials dismissing the need for bean counters or lawyers who could enforce regulations that would slow business down. Harrison Otis used his paper as his personal mouthpiece, and his number one issue was union busting, referring to labor leaders as, quote, corpse defacers. Otis's stated goal was to make this town union-free. Otis saw himself in direct opposition to Hearst, a national figure who launched his first Los Angeles paper, The Examiner, in 1903. Hearst was then a left-wing progressive who trumpeted the rights of workers, who he considered to be the bulk of his audience. Otis handed the paper down to his son-in-law, Harry Chandler, and several generations of the Chandler family would use the Times as Otis had intended it, to shape Los Angeles as the most pro-business, anti-union major city in the country. The family and their cronies also ensured the corruption of the LAPD by using the city cops as their own private security force. And, the Chandlers and the Times were responsible for the dominance of Republicans in California state government through most of the 20th century. They essentially rigged elections through media blackouts. As Norman Chandler, Otis's grandson, acknowledged, we would give Republicans all the space they could desire. We hardly mentioned a Democrat candidate. Over the decades, the animosity between the Times and Hearst would only intensify. The Times is not a public institution run in the service of the people, Hearst would say of the competition. It is an instrument of the promotion of Mr. Chandler's unpatriotic enterprises and crooked deals. Hedda Hopper's rise was made possible by her connections at the Times although she was not technically an employee of the Times. Her column was syndicated to that paper and others. Of course, that distinction wouldn't have been known by most readers, nor would it have mattered. And the fact is, 
Hedda Hopper's brand and the brand of the newspaper the Chandler family was producing in the mid-20th century turned out to be extremely compatible. Hopper was something of a Trump figure, with little use for discipline or standards, appearing to shake up the status quo while really pushing the interests of the powerful. It has to be said that we've just come out of a period in which the President of the United States had media brands like Fox News and the National Enquirer doing his bidding, both openly and behind the scenes. This felt brazen in the late 2010s, but it wasn't new or different when you consider that one of Hedda Hopper's primary activities was doing the bidding of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Luella Parsons' columns about movies and celebrities were political in that they were tied to the personal and financial interests of William Randolph Hearst, an inherently political figure and sometime politician. But Hedda Hopper's columns about movies were explicitly political and explicitly right-wing. Her foregrounding of politics in a discourse that had rarely previously overlapped with hard news had a real impact on the evolutions in both Hollywood and Washington that would culminate in our modern media landscape. We're currently living in a time of intensely partisan media in which many consumers pick the journalistic slants, aesthetics, personalities, and brands that they prefer, and demonize other points of view, which are often fully alternate versions of reality, as false or fake. As the stories of Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons and their lives and media times will show us, the bias isn't new. What's new is the transparency with which we currently discuss that bias and division. In the days of Luella and Hedda, most readers didn't understand that many of the most major news brands, from the Los Angeles Times to Time Magazine, manipulated the news to fit the personal, political, and financial interests of the men who founded or controlled them. Back then, the studios controlled almost everything that was written about Hollywood stars and their personal lives or the business of making movies. They could choose to promote and protect their stars or allow them to be sacrificed for the greater good of the industry. Over time, things would change so that stars would accumulate more and more power over their press coverage. The media changed too, but even as there were attempts to meet new paradigms of celebrity with new versions of investigative journalism, The corruption of celebrity news is so endemic that it seems to be the default. On previous seasons of this show, I've mentioned what historians call the Thermidor reaction. This phrase comes from the French Revolution and it refers to a pendulum swing that happens after a culture adopts a more progressive government or a point of view. Often, there's a backlash in the other direction And the net-net is two steps forward, one step back. Something similar happens in cycles with gossip. A new columnist, a new brand, a new technology will pop up with the claim that they're going to break the tradition of bias and backroom deals and tell it like it is. 
And then, inevitably, something happens that causes them to enter into one Faustian bargain after another, which results in them choosing to or being forced to curb the truth in any number of ways. It's a slippery slope. A dog only has so many teeth in its mouth. Remove enough of them, and he isn't going to be able to chew. In this series, we'll discuss all that and more. Today, we'll go back to the beginning to talk about how Parsons insinuated herself into the fabric of the film industry in the first decades of the 20th century. Join us, won't you, for part one of our new series, Gossip Girls. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When Luella Parsons was a teenager, the job of movie gossip columnist didn't exist. Feature films didn't yet exist. Even the idea of becoming a journalist for a small-town girl seemed like a totally outsized fantasy. Her hometown was Dixon, a small city in rural Illinois, closer to Iowa than to Chicago. When Luella Parsons was growing up there in the last years of the 19th century, young women were not expected to have ambitions other than raising a family. Luella's own mother, Helen Edinger, had wanted to be an actress. But with marriage and motherhood, Helen followed through on the Victorian expectation that she put all other ambitions away. The turn of the century accelerated change. Helen's daughter Luella at no point contemplated a life without work. Still, her professional ambitions were all mixed up with what it was evident was still valued most in women. As she later recalled, I wanted to grow up as quickly as possible and to be hailed, if not as the best writer in America, at least as the youngest and the most beautiful. In 1900, the year Luella turned 19, 
there were an estimated 2,000 female journalists working across all 45 U.S. states. Many of these women found their writing relegated to what were called the women's pages, consisting of society gossip and tips and tricks for keeping a home. There were a couple of exceptions. One was Elizabeth Jane Cochran, a young woman from Western Pennsylvania who married an older millionaire and broke into journalism by accident after she sent an angry letter to an editor and the editor decided she had talent. Under the pen name Nellie Bly, Cochran put in her time doing what was expected of her, reporting on fashion and homemaking. And then she used the privilege of her marital wealth to transform herself into a foreign correspondent. She was hired by Joseph Pulitzer as a columnist at his New York paper, The World. And from there, Bly launched a career doing what was known as stunt journalism. She got herself committed to an insane asylum in order to report on its appalling conditions. She pretended to be pregnant to expose the black market trade in unwanted babies. She traveled around the world in 72 days, alone, for the purpose of writing about it. Her columns made the case that women could stand on their own, having the kinds of adventures that male journalists would consider all in a day's work or at least one token woman at a few newspapers could. Nellie Bly's success led to the hiring of a number of other female, so-called stunt reporters, most of whom worked under pseudonyms and wrote in the character of a plucky girl reporter. In fact, the Chicago Times even ran a series of undercover reports about abortion, credited to a writer referred to only as girl reporter. It didn't seem like there could possibly be a place for Luella in that world. So even though she managed to get a few bylines in her local paper in college, as a fallback, Luella trained to be a teacher. And after graduation, she reluctantly took a job at an elementary school. On Halloween 1905, 26-year-old Luella married John Parsons, a local catch. The marriage went south almost immediately, and by the time Luella realized she was pregnant, John was already living with another woman. Luella's daughter, Harriet Parsons, was born in August 1906, and she would barely know her father. By 1910, though not officially divorced, Luella had abandoned the notion that her husband might come back to her. She packed up her things and her daughter and moved to Chicago. There, through family connections, Luella landed a job at SNA Studios. Though just three years old, SNA had already become a linchpin of the Chicago movie scene. In the coming years, the studio would produce the early films of soon to be major stars, such as Charlie Chaplin and Gloria Swanson. The city itself was an important hub of the national film circuit in the days before production was centralized on the coasts. And yet, the film industry as an industry was in its infancy, and nowhere near the glamorous walled garden that it would become. In 1910, it was easy to break in. Luella was hired as a script editor, which in that era 
When cinema was a volume business, movies were silent and the feature-length film hadn't yet been invented, meant she had extraordinary power over which films were made and how they were made. In fact, Luella Parsons probably had more power at SNA than any entry-level employee would ever have in the future of the film industry. SNA received bags full of spec scripts written by movie fans. Nowadays, such unsolicited submissions would get thrown in the trash for legal reasons. But back then, the industry was new enough and demand for content was high enough that a studio such as SNA actually needed help generating material. Luella was hired to comb through the submissions to find good ideas. She and a co-editor would then rework the scripts to add characters, scenes, or appropriate filming directions to make the most of SNA's stock players and other resources. Luella always tried to make a character a bride because the studio's wardrobe department had a surplus of white dresses. Eventually, Luella started writing scripts of her own from scratch. One, produced as Margaret's Awakening in 1912, starred six-year-old Harriet Parsons. Luella's $20 a week salary gave her full financial independence. And in September 1911, she was able to divorce John Parsons. Luella kept her first husband's surname for the rest of her life, while keeping the true story of his exit from her life obscured, insisting that she had been widowed rather than left for another woman. This distinction meant something in the early 20th century, and it had to do with more than just Luella's pride. A widow with a small child had no choice but to go to work to make a living. Everyone could understand that and empathize with her. But a woman whose husband preferred another woman was perceived to be at personal fault. And a woman who built a career in flight from a bad marriage was considered suspect. Transforming herself into a widow allowed Luella to cast herself as an inspirational figure who pulled herself up by her bootstraps out of the pure necessity of fate. The reality was that Luella had secured for herself an enormous level of freedom for a woman of her age in that era. And she made the most of it. At SNA, Luella bonded with her coworkers over boozy card games. Her close friends included major stars, including Frances Bushman. This was a point in the business in which movie making wasn't taken seriously as an art or a business. So a woman like Luella could not only obtain a significant job behind the scenes, but movie stars weren't yet movie stars. They were just folks. Luella was getting into the business not quite at year zero, but close enough to it that later, when she transitioned into the newspaper game, she would become possibly the only person writing about movies and movie making with a true insider knowledge and understanding of the industry that went back to basically the beginning. This would become important later, as she began to develop her persona as a cheerleader for the studios. Adopting that persona would be a business decision, but it was one rooted in her personal experiences and her desire to protect an industry which she was in a unique position to understand 
was potentially ephemeral. Movies had not always existed. If they weren't protected, they wouldn't always be there. Luella learned a lesson about disposability in 1914, when SNA brought in an efficiency expert to help manage their finances, and it became clear immediately that Luella's position was in danger of being cut. Knowing she would soon be in need of a new job, Luella pitched a column on how to write a movie to the Chicago Herald. She was turned down the first two times she came into the paper's office, but the third time proved the charm. Luella wore down the paper's editor with her feminine wiles. As she explained, I was young and pretty. In early 1915, the Herald hired Luella full-time to contribute both her screenwriting column and a new daily column of movie industry gossip called Scene on the Screen. By this point, the prospects for women in American newspaper journalism had become more complicated, thanks to the phenomenon of so-called sob sisters. This term was coined during the 1907 trial of millionaire Henry Kendall Thaw, who shot architect Stanford White over his relationship with Thaw's wife, actress Evelyn Nesbitt. Four female journalists covered that trial, the first to be dubbed the trial of the century. These writers, Winifred Black, Dorothy Dix, Nixilla Greeley-Smith, and Ada Patterson, all sat in the courtroom together and became a spectacle for the sheer sight of their numbers in that context. At that point, women were not allowed to serve on juries and were generally not allowed in courtrooms at all unless they were on trial themselves or related to someone who was. Male journalists derided the group for their supposed surfeit of sympathy for showgirl Nesbitt, although the female-penned accounts of the trial were not noticeably more emotional than those written by male journalists. Still, the term sob sister stuck to a genre of columnists who dramatized scandals and drew attention to social issues and causes of interest to a female audience. The sob sister trend may have led to more jobs for women at newspapers, but such columns had the effect of further ghettoizing female writers because the most respectable papers turned their nose up at such content. Sob sisters were relegated to what were known as the yellow papers. Though there is much debate as to the exact origin of the term yellow journalism, it generally refers to the products of a circulation war in the late 19th and early 20th century, in which papers like the New York World owned and operated by Joseph Pulitzer, competed for readers with the likes of the New York Examiner, run by William Randolph Hearst. Pulitzer pioneered a style of flashy headlines and splashy cover photos, pushing the limits of what was considered acceptable in terms of violence and nudity circa 1900. In Pulitzer's paper, there was a bait and switch. The lurid covers sold papers whose insides were dedicated to promoting social reform. Hearst was inspired by Pulitzer, but he took the tactics further. And eventually, the two barons 
became dedicated to topping one another. While his yellow journalism tactics had been very successful, Hearst's exploitation of the Evelyn Nesbitt scandal caused some critics to believe Hearst had crossed a line. Hearst's New York Journal ran coverage of the trial that was blatantly friendly to accused murderer Harry Thaw, which made sense because Thaw's good friend, Charles Somerville, was writing the coverage. Influential Chicago journalist Parker Sircombe wrote a column in his magazine Tomorrow, in which he not only took Hearst to task, but valuably enumerated his methods. The sex affairs of three people and the shooting of one of them in its relation to our population is insignificant. But the bringing of the two living figures in the drama into the limelight of publicity as the greatest hero and heroine of our times, as examples for emulation by millions of young people, printing photographs in a thousand poses, misrepresenting testimony, making up daily page upon page of news when no news existed, anticipating occurrences, and in cold blood, attempting for pay to form public opinion so as to force the court to free thaw. is a crime so stupendous as to place the original shooting scrape entirely out of the same class. Over the first years of her long career as a newspaper woman, Luella Parsons was assigned her fair share of sob sister stories. She also eventually did some hard news reporting. But she would stake her claim to fame as the writer of the first movie gossip column in America. Though Luella herself was happy to trumpet this accomplishment, she really wasn't the first. She wasn't even the first in Chicago. The Herald's competing paper, The Tribune, had two columnists who mixed film reviews with gossip about the stars. There had been gossip columns about the rich and famous in newspapers virtually since the beginning of newspapers. But when Luella got her first real journalism job in 1915, the very idea of movie stars was relatively new. Florence Lawrence, the first actress to be credited by name, didn't even see that name in lights until 1910. So if Luella Parsons wasn't the absolute first movie gossip columnist, there's no question she would become the first nationally known gossip writer who specialized in the film industry. She certainly had more access to the stars than any other reporter in Chicago, thanks to the contacts she had made at SNA. A year into her column, she landed an interview with Mary Pickford. This was a big get because after Florence Lawrence, Pickford was just the second female movie star to literally make a name for herself. And she was just breaking out when Luella first interviewed her in 1915. Parsons knew how important maintaining access and relationships were to her continued success as a movie journalist. And so though she would sometimes publish honest negative film reviews, Generally, she played her part in the publicity machine. Even at this early stage of her career, Luella was making an impression as a champion of the film industry. So it's not that surprising that she worked hard to defend the biggest, most controversial hit film of her first year at the paper, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. 
Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. It's evident today that the birth of a nation presents a racist, alternate history of the post-Civil War Reconstruction era which functioned as a recruitment film for the Ku Klux Klan, which was all but dormant until this movie's blockbuster success sparked its revival. This was all evident to some viewers back in 1915, too. And that's why, even though The Birth of a Nation was a financial behemoth that some have argued catalyzed the growth of the film industry as the kind of business that the financial sector took seriously, the film still apparently required defending, even in its first flush of fame. Luella was handed an opportunity to defend Griffith's epic of white supremacy because of her geography. Shortly after she became a movie columnist in Chicago, Mayor William Thompson revoked the birth of a nation's permit from the local censorship board, which effectively banned the movie in that city a major box office market at the time. Thompson was acting in what he believed was the public interest. He thought the movie was so racist 
that it was liable to incite riots. By this point, the NAACP had protested the film in several cities, which had led to conflicts with police that ultimately served as further publicity for the movie. In Boston, where Black people were not even allowed into the theater to see the film, a brief uprising was quickly quelled by an outsized show of police force. The mayor of Chicago was hoping to avoid this kind of thing altogether. Unfortunately for him, Griffith's team took the matter to court, and to shore up their case, they needed good publicity. They held a private screening of Birth of a Nation for Luella. She emerged from the three-hour endurance test and proclaimed it the finest motion picture she had ever seen. This was not an unusual opinion at the time. Though Birth of a Nation gets a lot of credit for breaking ground that it does not deserve, in its length, epic sweep, and use of recently developed techniques in film language, the movie was, for many viewers, an overwhelming experience, unlike anything they had ever seen over the course of cinema's then-brief history. From the perspective of today, we don't have to like the movie, and I don't like it, and we can try to correct the record of false claims about it that have become canonized. But I've read many anecdotal accounts from people who were in movie theaters watching The Birth of a Nation in 1915 and were blown away by it. Those viewers did not understand where the film stood or would stand in history, and most weren't thinking about the movie as a political action. They were having a purely emotional response. And that emotional response is why The Birth of a Nation became such a blockbuster and why it was able to have the horrible, regrettable political and ideological impact it had. Because millions of people experienced it through feeling instead of thinking. But not all the viewers had the platform Luella had in a city in which this film's right to be exhibited was on the line. Luella swiftly turned her column over to an extended campaign in favor of the birth of a nation in which she promoted D.W. Griffith as the most important filmmaker in America, helping to make a myth that lingers to this day. In one column, she raved, This is a colossal production from the master producer of motion pictures. It was Griffith who first lifted pictures from the mediocre and gave them the real creative power they now possess. He is the pioneer of pictures. And for this success, born of both hard work and talent, he deserves the highest praise. Later, she presented an interview with Griffith with this breathless introduction. I want to say that it was the moment I have lived for to personally meet this screen poet and hear from his own lips the miracle tale of his film symphonies. Griffith and his team won their case against the city of Chicago. The movie was allowed to screen freely, and as in many other cities, it became a phenomenon. 
Luella's fervent embrace of Birth of a Nation would become one of the signature moments of her early career, lifting her profile as well as the film's. For the rest of her career and her life, she'd remain proud of her association with its success, patting herself on the back as a champion of free speech. She never acknowledged the film's racism, but then most cheerleaders of the film industry didn't during her lifetime. It's impossible to separate racism out of the discourse surrounding the birth of a nation. But a lot of people pretended like they could. Or they tried to ignore the ways in which the movie functioned as a nostalgic portrait of slave-era race relations and a rallying cry for white supremacy. Because the movie was so financially successful. In 1915, To stake a claim against such a big hit would have been tantamount to mounting an attack on the film industry's right to thrive. Her campaign in favor of the film helped Luella establish her own personal brand as a cheerleader for the industry, no matter what it was that the industry was selling. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. By mid-1915, Luella was established as Chicago's top movie journalist, which put her in prime position to build on the advantage that had boosted her in the first place, her access. Over the next few years, a visit with Parsons would become mandatory for every star or mogul passing through town. And then, suddenly, her job was in jeopardy. Luella returned from a conference in New York to discover that the Chicago Herald had been bought by William Randolph Hearst. 1917 marked Hearst's 30-year anniversary as a newspaper publisher. He had taken over his first publication, The San Francisco Examiner, from his father, a gold rush millionaire who had acquired it from a gambler who couldn't pay his debt. Since then, the younger Hearst had turned a single paper into an empire. First in San Francisco and then at each of his papers around the nation, Hearst used his publications as the voice of the pro-worker, anti-monopoly, anti-imperialist politics he then believed in. In the late 1800s, he used his New York paper, The Journal, to foment anger at Spain's occupation of Cuba. 
though Hearst has inaccurately been credited with sparking the Spanish-American War through his paper's highly manipulative coverage, both Hearst's journal and Pulitzer's New York World ran exaggerated and embellished coverage of the conflict that swayed public opinion and boosted both men's bottom lines by boosting circulation. Hearst continued to make his career on blurring and then exploiting the line between reported fact and manipulated dramatization. At one point, he wrote, No one knows better than the intelligent newspaper man that truth is stranger than fiction. Indeed, this is the great reason why the newspaper holds its own against the novel and the play. In fact, Hearst was dedicated to making sure that his papers not only held their own with fictional storytelling, but that his readers would not be able to discern a difference in entertainment value between his truth and their fiction. By 1900, Hearst had created a newspaper in Chicago at the request of the Democratic National Committee, who needed a local mouthpiece. This paper, called the Chicago American, changed ownership and names several times over the next 18 years. It was called the Chicago Herald when Luella went to work there in 1915, and it had the same name three years later when Hearst reacquired it. Hearst had exerted a notable influence over the movies, dating back to the turn of the century. In 1902, when directing his film The Capture of the Biddle Brothers, Edwin Porter staged shots that mimicked an illustration of the real-life fugitive siblings in flight from the law that had appeared exclusively in Hearst's New York paper. Hearst later entered the film production business himself by creating a company called the International Picture Service to produce newsreels. Though the earliest motion pictures were, in essence, short documentaries of real events and actions, in the 19-teens, there was no filmed news industry. Here, Hearst was a pioneer. He saw, virtually before anyone else, that the audiences who consumed his newspapers and the audiences who flocked to the movie houses were the same, and that various sections of his papers could be easily delivered in the motion picture format. Subsequently, he hired future Hollywood auteur Gregory LaCava to produce animated film shorts inspired by newspaper comic strips. And in 1914, Hearst got in the business of producing fiction films with The Perils of Pauline, an insanely popular serialized series of short films about the daring adventures of the titular young woman. So by 1918, Hearst knew full well that movies were a growing business. And yet, after the Hearst takeover of the Herald, editor Arthur Brisbane told Luella to start looking for a new job. The newly named Herald Examiner wouldn't need a movie columnist, according to Brisbane, because there wasn't enough serious reader interest in movies. It was true that many newspapers were late in taking the film industry seriously. But there may have been another reason why Luella was sent packing at this point. Three years earlier, in a memo about theater coverage at his papers, Hearst wrote that he was, quote, 
wholly averse to negative reviews and only wanted to run, quote, interesting accounts of dramatic performances with only kindly and considerate criticism of performance. I would not want anyone on paper who would not adopt our style of dramatic article. In other words, I don't want dramatic critic. I want dramatic reporter who will give entertaining account of performance, quote bright lines, and consider on the whole the viewpoint of public rather than perverse view of a blasé critic. Luella had hardly proven herself to be perverse or blasé, but Hearst's memo was merely part of the formalization of an informal process of payola that he had put in place at his papers, which dictated the shape of their entertainment coverage. Big advertisers would be given prominent ad placement in the paper, and their productions would also get positive mention in editorials, often written by Brisbane. Hearst's partner in the Pauline serial was the film distributor Pathé, and as part of their deal, Hearst's papers gave Pathé films tons of free publicity. For both Pauline and other Pathé productions, Hearst would run portions of the film's story in his evening papers as editorial articles which concluded with cliffhangers and the recommendation that readers go out to see the movie to learn the ending. Incidentally, the very phrase cliffhanger entered the lexicon after an episode of The Perils of Pauline featured its lead actress literally hanging off of a cliff. So... In short, there wasn't a lot of room in a Hearst paper for what Luella Parsons was doing at the time, which may have been fluff reporting, often breathless in its adoration of her subjects, but was still reporting which the Hearst organization had no evidence that they could control or subject to their business model. If Luella was told by Arthur Brisbane that the paper no longer needed a film reporter— That was true, but it may have only been because actual reporting was antithetical to the advertorial he himself had pioneered. So in 1918, Luella, Harriet, Luella's mom, and her cousin Maggie moved together to New York. In her first years there, Luella would befriend an actress named Hedda Hopper, and even boost Hopper's career through her columns. We will return to Hedda's story in two weeks. Next week, we'll explore how Luella Parsons' new life in New York led to both an alliance with William Randolph Hearst and a new role he assigned the gossip columnist to play in promoting his mistress as well as spying on her. Join us then, won't you? for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed 
by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. This episode featured a special appearance by James Gray. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs>